BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hello and welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman. And today, before I start the episode, because of the sensitive and intense nature of this particular topic, we're going to put all the ads first so that you hear from our sponsors. And then I'm going to introduce my guest. Just because the pandemic has turned our lives upside down doesn't mean you have to let the new normal of stress and anxiety be your normal. Talking to a therapist is a great first step. It's a signal to yourself that you're ready to be the one in control. By seeking help, you're giving yourself a chance to heal and grow, to overcome the difficulties and uncertainty of the past year, and to take care of yourself. I wholeheartedly recommend Talkspace. You can sign up online and start a therapy the same day you sign up. You can text, video, or send voice messages to your licensed therapist so it's incredibly convenient at a time when people are still hesitant to get back out into the world. You can have virtual sessions from the comfort of your home. Therapy can really help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, and really be a guiding light. Talkspace is also a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. You don't have to wait for an appointment and they'll engage with you daily, five days a week. Talkspace has thousands of licensed therapists with years of experience in over 40 specialties, including depression, anxiety, substance use, trauma, anger management, relationship issues, food and eating, and more. And it's secure and private using the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information and comply with the latest HIPAA regulations. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code HUMANS to get $100 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's HUMANS and Talkspace.com. If you have anyone relying on your income, you need life insurance. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers all in one place. You can save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius, and you can save $1,300 or more per year on life insurance by using Policy Genius to compare policies. The licensed experts at Policy Genius work for you, not the insurance companies, so you can trust them to help you navigate every step of the shopping and buying process. First, Head to policygenius.com. 
And then you can, in minutes, work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best price. And when you're ready to apply, the Policy Genius team will handle the paperwork and scheduling for free. Policy Genius never sells your information to other companies, and they do not add extra fees. So head to policygenius.com to get started right away. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Policygenius.com. Ancient Nutrition has one goal, to transform the health of every individual on the planet. So it drives them to create whole food nutritional products made with real ingredients for real results you can see and feel. Every product is rooted in tradition and supported by science. Ancient Nutrition is based in traditional Chinese herbalism and Ayurveda, which are ways of eating and thinking that have survived generations, combined with today's modern research. They believe that proper nutrition isn't just about eating the right foods, it's about ingredients that your body can truly use. And so they source the world's highest quality ingredients and rigorously test them for pesticides, herbicides, and heavy metals. It's why they do everything they can to create products that your body can easily digest and absorb. Every one of the products has a purpose. The fan favorite and my favorite is the multi-collagen protein. If you just want a place to start, this is it. The multi-collagen protein can help revitalize your joints, skin, and hair, and reduce joint discomfort as early as day one. And it can help smooth lines after a month of use, improve skin tone after eight weeks. It's made with clinically studied ingredients, including five types of collagen, and it easily just stirs into your morning coffee. It has no taste, dissolves right away, it's more than just collagen. So go to ancientnutrition.com and use the code HUMANS for 20% off your first Ancient Nutrition purchase. If you're looking to revitalize your joints, skin, and hair, do it with clinically studied ingredients. Use the code HUMANS for 20% off at store.draxe.com. What's up, well-beings? I'm Kelly Noonan-Gorris, and this is The Heal Podcast. Every Thursday, I interview the leading experts in health and healing, as well as real people with extraordinary healing stories. Whether you want to heal a physical diagnosis, a mental health issue, a past trauma, or heal our planet, The Heal Podcast is for you. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss that one episode that holds the answers you've been searching for. You can follow us on Instagram at at Heal Documentary and at Kelly Gores and catch episode clips on Heal Documentary's YouTube channel. Don't forget to tune in every Thursday anywhere podcasts are found. Today we're talking about suicide prevention and suicide in youth. People aren't sure if they should bring up suicide at what age to start talking about it, if there's a way to empower kids to address this, if they've had an experience of loss in their community, if they are struggling with their mental health. And most importantly, parents don't know what to do or what to say if they're worried about their own child. Before I bring on Dr. Kelly Posner, who is a professor of psychiatry at Columbia University, her work is saving lives all over the globe. The U.S. Department of Defense said that her work is nothing short of a miracle and that her effective model of improving the world will help propel us closer to the world without suicide. The Center for Disease Control noted that her work is changing the paradigm in suicide risk assessment in the U.S. and worldwide. And the American 
Psychiatric Association noted that her work with Columbia could be like the introduction of antibiotics. Her work has been so instrumental in reducing rates of suicide, which have historically been incredibly difficult to even stabilize. There have been such increases in the last decade in youth suicide. So we're going to be talking about this Columbia protocol. And I absolutely wanted to bring you the person who created this protocol, who could speak most effectively about this very painful and sensitive topic. Um, But we aren't actually reading the protocol during this episode. So I wanted to give you an understanding of it a little bit before, then more of this will make sense as you listen to our conversation. And I will put in the show notes, as well as on my Instagram at Raising Good Humans podcast, access to this protocol, which is free and short and really easy. So it's a policy across 50 states and actually a lot of national agencies, many countries have commissioned this protocol to have a suicide risk assessment and intervention that's really become the gold standard for suicide monitoring. But it's not in the hands of every parent and every young person who wants to help their peers who are struggling, and it can be. So it's important to know this. It's important to understand what this protocol is and know that there are cards with these simple questions that are created with language if you're a peer, if you're a parent, teacher, coach, and various others. And it's got versions for really young people, adolescents, and adults. This protocol is a vital component of school safety, so it's something to make sure that your school has access to. Remember that suicide is the number one cause of death among adolescent girls globally, and the number two cause of death among U.S. 10 to 24-year-olds. But when you have access to this information, we can reduce that risk. So these are a few simple questions about suicidal thoughts and behavior that empower communities, families, and individuals to find people who are at risk and prevent tragedies before they happen. You can ask as few as two questions, as many as six questions, and you do not need mental health training to ask them. The scale uniquely identifies those who would otherwise be missed. It's free and available at no cost. And this originated at the National Institute of Mental Health Adolescent Suicide Attemptor Treatment Study. And then it generated an unprecedented amount of research that validates these questions. When we can properly assess a person's risk for suicide, it helps everyone in the community and tells you exactly what to do as next steps so that we can save lives. So I'm reading these questions and I'm reading them so that you have a context for what we're talking about on this episode when we refer back to the Columbia. But I really encourage you to go to the website, which is in the show notes, to look through this information and look at the different formats for the various people and ages and really understand how you can have help. The first question is, have you wished you were dead or wished you could go to sleep and not wake up? And the second question is, have you actually had any thoughts about killing yourself? 
And that's it. If you get a no, you stop asking the question and you go seek support because your child may be struggling, but they are not at imminent risk. And you go directly to the last question that you always want to ask, have you done anything? Have you started to do anything or prepared to do anything to end your life? If they answer yes, then there are a series of other questions to ask about how they might do this, if they have any intention of acting on these thoughts, if they've started to work out or work the details of how they might kill themselves, do they intend to carry out this plan? So when you look at these questions, they guide you whether or not the answer is yes or no onto the next part and direct you to how to get further care. Any yes indicates a need for further care. Any yes to these questions. If there's a yes to the questions about starting to do anything about it, preparing for it, working out a plan, then it's an emergency and you don't want to leave this person alone and you stay with them. Either way, if you are worried about your child or if they have friends that they are worried about, asking these questions can save lives. And now Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber is going to talk more in detail about this important topic. And please reach out. You can always DM me at Raising Good Humans podcast on my Instagram. Again, you can go to the show notes. You can go to the Columbia Lighthouse project itself, cssrs.columbia.edu, so that you can download these questions and get this information yourself. Thank you for listening. This is such an important conversation to have. It's really difficult, but having this conversation is life-saving. So it's really a great honor to be here today because I, I cherish these moments when we can make a difference by just giving such important information to, to parents and, and, and people everywhere that will, will help them save lives. So let me, let me start with the, the very good news. Okay. There is hope. There is help. Suicide is preventable and people do not have to suffer. Okay. But the fact is, this is one of the world's greatest public health crises. It is a leading cause of death across the world, across ages. And it is not a problem of youth, of elderly, of veterans. It is a problem of our shared humanity. But again, the very good news is it's our one preventable cause of death, despite the fact that it is this tragic paradox that takes more firemen than fire, more police than crime, more soldiers than combat, more lives than car accidents. Can you believe that? Did you know that it's the number one cause in, of death in teenage girls across the globe? It's the second leading cause of death in 10 to 24 year olds in our nation. You know, it accounts for more deaths than war, homicide and natural disasters combined. And, and, and let, let me, let me stop to emphasize the magnitude of the problem in youth. As I said, second leading cause of death in 10 to 24 year olds. Did you know that eight to 14 year old suicide has gone up 150% in the last seven years? 
150%. And the CDC has also told us that five-year-old suicide has gone up. Five-year-old suicides. People go, five-year-olds actually take their lives. They actually do. It's very rare, but they do. But guess what? Guess what, Elisa? Only among African-American preschoolers. So Kelly, there's an overlap between systemic racism and suicide and mental health. Yes, sadly, in, in many extremely concerning ways, we've seen the intersection of these two humanitarian crises, right? I, I spoke about how five-year-old suicide has gone up, but only in African-American preschoolers. You know, there was um, New York City Department of Human Rights reached out to me because there was a hanging in one of our parks in New York City. It was a hanging of a young African-American male. And this mimicked things that were going on across the nation. And first they were worried it was actually murder or a lynching, but it, it was actually suicide. And, and, and we're going to do community events to really kind of unpack what we can do. And we've seen significant increases among African-American youth. But this is the good news. With every depressing statistic I give you, we actually have hopeful counterparts. So we have this work out of Tennessee, for example, how using the Columbia protocol to address the increasing suicide rate in African-American adolescents, right? So we can address this, but here's so here's the good news and the and also the things we must continue to pay attention to. So over the last 20 years, the suicide rate has increased steadily, okay? Every year, increased steadily. So the reason that the head of American Psychiatric Association called the Columbia potentially the next antibiotic is because we've made 50% reductions, 50% reductions in all of these other diseases but we haven't touched suicide. In fact, it's continually gone up. And he says, because of stigma and a lack of an easy to use method to detect it and take action to, to prevent it, right? To intervene. And so what we've actually seen, this is the very good news. Guess what? In 2020, during COVID, okay? The CDC has told us that the suicide rate for the first time in 20 years has gone down gone down by 2%. So what that tells us is that everything we've been doing in the field with identification and treatment and messaging is actually making a difference. But here's the concerning part that we have to continue to pay attention to. That decrease was in among white Americans, where we continue to see increases across the nation is in minorities and disadvantaged. So this troubling intersection is something we must, must, must continue to, to pay great attention to. I've been speaking about what we know about suicide. Let's talk about also what, what the precursors are, you know? So, so we know yeah, that's, that, what, that's what I was going to ask you. So who is at risk in addition to, of course, what you just said that African-Americans are at an increased risk. If we're talking about young people, what are the risk factors? What are some things to look for? What's, what are the precursors? One thing I want to make sure to say, we've been talking about death by suicide, but suicide attempts and suicidal thoughts, suicidal behavior and suicidal thoughts are 
I, I really have to highlight how prevalent they are because that gives us a chance to intervene and make a difference. So do you know that the CDC prior to COVID, okay, has told us that among your average high schoolers across this nation, 12% of boys, nearly 10% of girls say they've tried to take their own lives in the past year, in the past year. And we know these are gross underestimates before we've had better, more comprehensive monitoring. These are not disadvantaged populations, et cetera, et cetera. So we know they don't touch what the real rate is. And that was prior to COVID. We have a new studies out of pediatrics and other journals using the Columbia that shows that, of course, suicidal thoughts and suicidal thinking has gone up during COVID, right? We know that. We also know, the CDC also told us that in 2020, suicidal ideation in youth increased significantly. But also, what is really startling to me is, you know, when COVID first began, no parents didn't want to take their kids to the emergency room. Right, Eliza? Yeah. You even with high fevers, who knew if they would go there and then get COVID and and not survive? Right. right? But guess what? Children's mental health related ED visits went up 24 percent in five to 17 year olds at the beginning of COVID, meaning the emotional distress was so bad that, that they were they, willing to go, they had to go. Right. Wow. Mm -hmm. And we know just now there was a study out of APA just last Sunday that more than half of adults with kids under 18 say they're concerned about the mental health of their kids. 48% say that the pandemic has caused mental health. 49% say they've gotten help. But this is the concerning part that we really have to continue to think about addressing. More than one in five parents had trouble scheduling appointments for their kids, right? And yeah. this, these statistics were particularly bad related to virtual education, right? 63% reported, you know, decrease in their physical activity and, and over a quarter worsening in mental, emotional health. These are the things that we really have to you know, have to pay attention to. Of course. And all, a, a lot of the things that we suggest to boost mental health were ripped away during this year. So ripped away is a, is a, is a great word. And, and I want to say, you said like, who's at risk. And that's a really important thing that I, that I need to emphasize. Everybody is at risk. Depression and suicide, they do not discriminate. Rich, poor, you know, black, white celebrity or teacher before COVID one person in every four in every room will have a, you know, a mental health issue to deal with and in kids, same issue. So it, it does not discriminate. And I, and I think one of the most important things, remember I said, we can do away with this preventable cause of death. All right. Mm -hmm. What do I mean by that? All right. What, what do we know? What is the formula? Well, there are two things. All right. The first thing is that we have to find the people suffering in silence. You know, many people assume that when somebody's feeling bad, they're going to come to you. No, sometimes they don't have the will to come to you. And we know that 50% of people are, who die by suicide have seen their primary care doctor the month before they die. We need to be asking questions the way we monitor for blood pressure or do vision testing. Aliza, did you know that two thirds of adolescents who show up to the emergency department who've tried to take their own lives are not there for psychiatric reasons? 
What does that mean? It means we have to be asking everybody so we can find the people suffering in silence. And by the way, the secondary gain of that is when we start to ask everybody like that, we normalize it when we screen, okay? We decrease the stigma and we increase our ability to have people feel okay about asking for help. But the other important thing is that I need to explain to your listeners out there is that we have to have that concept well beyond the doctor's office because guess what? Many kids and many people never get to the doctor. So one of the things that we've recognized in the field is why we weren't moving the needle because we actually have to preventing suicide depends upon finding people where they work, live, thrive, and study. Okay. We have to find people at home in schools. It's what's called a public health approach, because again, some people may never get to the doctors and that's why parents like you, people, you, all of you parents listening have a very unique role. Peers have a very unique role. Teachers have a very unique role. So I always say that we have to have this blood pressure concept well beyond the doctor's office. So for example, did you guys know that it's the number one cause of death in construction workers? So we've been on the phone with the unions for years that maybe the safety checks in the morning will be more than the hard hat. It will be the Columbia protocol. Major League League Baseball brought us out. You know, the guy in the, in the, in the locker room, Princeton University years ago said the athletic coach and the librarian, because the point is, this is how you can find people suffering in silence. So, Aliza, you know, I had the great fortune of the great opportunity because it would save lives to give the lead presentation to the Senate after after the Parkland tragedy. Mm-hmm. And what I said to all those senators is you all have policy for the Columbia with the doctor, often the policeman, but how do we get it in every teacher, every parent, every coach's hands before they ever, if they ever get to the doctor? And and Kelly, that is the big question. And that's why today it was so important to me to have you on here because parents don't know about this and they really, and it's so doable. It's so usable. And also, and we'll get to this later, peers can know about this. I want to bring up something to expand on a little bit. You mentioned normalizing this. And what I wanted to ask you about is there are a lot of parents who express concern mentioning suicide to their kids because they don't want to put ideas into their head. And I wonder if you could touch on that and also speak to what is the difference between the rates of kids having ideation, but not having a plan and kids who are actually thinking about it in a more, more reality-based way. And I ask this because when you talked about normalizing in the, the emergency room, for example, I wonder how does it make a child feel or a teenager feel to be asked, have you thought about killing yourself and to even perhaps feel like they aren't crazy? They're not alone. These questions are being asked because other people think this way. And that doesn't mean that it necessarily leads to action. Yeah. So, so even you asking me that question, right. Is mm-hmm. representative of the years of stigma, misunderstanding, shame, and silence that has encompassed this issue. 
and everybody gets touched by it. You know, I, I wanted to say that, you know, 135 people are affected by every death by suicide. And those effects linger across generations because mm. of that silence that often follows. And when we normalize it and ask about this, like blood pressure or vision testing, et cetera, actually, it's very comforting to people that are actually suffering with this. I'm going to get into the data. One of the great things about the Columbia, besides the fact that it it destigmatizes it, it normalizes it, it's been chosen as the global common language and common method because it's the first time we have science-based thresholds for who to worry about, who's uh-huh. at imminent risk. And by the way, it's only 1% of people. And we're, we're going to get into that. But I want to kind of step back and say, is it harmful? Why weren't people asking questions? Right? Yeah. First of all, they didn't, Aliza, you know, they didn't know what questions to ask. They didn't know what to do with the answers. And now every mm. Columbia has what the next step is. So you know what to do with the answers. Also, they didn't know if it would be harmful to them. Right. They didn't know if asking would cause somebody to be suicidal. That's the clinical lore. Well, actually, it's the opposite. When people are suffering, they actually want help. They want to be asked. You know, one of the authors on the Columbia, Dr. Madeline Gould, has a seminal article in JAMA showing in high schoolers, showing that when you ask, you not, not only does it not cause somebody to be suicidal, it actually reduces distress because people feel good when they're asked. They want help. Let me tell you a quick story. My friend, Kevin Hines, he's a global, amazing hero who has done a lot um, as a survivor across the globe. And he tells a story when he was a teen, he woke up one morning and said, if just one person asks me if I'm okay, I won't do it. He gets on the bus to the Golden Gate Bridge. What's wrong with that kid? Gets shooed off the bus, goes to the side of the the bridge. Finally, a woman walks towards him and he becomes hopeful. And she says, can you take my picture? Forgive my German accent. She's asked five times to to take her picture. And he said, screw this, nobody cares. And he jumped. And as he jumped, he realized, like every other survivor, all he wanted to do was live. And he realized that all of the problems in his life were fixable, except the fact that he he just jumped. And I always say people want to be asked and they need to be asked. And he says people who are considering suicide want someone to save them. What we need is a culture where no one is afraid to ask. That's why the Columbia is so essential for humanity. And by the way, he gets down in the water and realizes he's alive and then feels something slimy and says, oh my God, just my luck. I just survived jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, which is 99% of the time fatal. And now I'm going to get eaten by a shark. So he's on on a TV show months later, ABC or something. And this guy calls in and says, oh my God, Kevin, I'm so happy you're alive. But let me tell you, buddy, it wasn't a shark. It was a sea lion who kept him afloat. You know, he wow. was meant to survive to to tell that story. And that- Kelly, I have a I have a question about that. Um, so, when Thirteen Reasons Why came out, and you know, when schools have um, community members that commit suicide, and then they talk about the contagion of it all, yes. can you speak to the difference between asking and talking about this and those? examples, which I think have contributed to that lore that you mentioned before, the kind of difference between copycat and really having conversations 
Yes. Listen, I'm so glad you, you mentioned 13 reasons. You know how I said, we know how to prevent this. Yeah. We know there are two things we need to do, right? We talked about how we have to identify people suffering in silence. The other thing is this following issue. The biggest cause of suicide is this genetic treatable medical illness called depression, but we do not think of depression the way we think of cancer. You would never hear the word choice when it comes to cancer, right? So I ask this question all over the world, doctors to parents, suicide is a choice, a sign of psychological weakness, akin to murder, akin to cancer, or all of the above. And invariably, you know what I get? A choice or all of the above. I just said, even doctors, have this stigma that is literally life-threatening. And what do I mean by that? 13 reasons? What does 13 reasons say? It says the opposite. It says this is a rational choice, not a brain-based illness. So guess what happened the month after the premiere? Suicide rates spiked, okay? You know, one of the Kennedy children was at a boarding school and she died by suicide. And she wrote this very compelling note. This is her quote. People talk about cancer freely. Why is it so difficult to discuss depression and other things just because it's not visible? As students, we have the power to end that immediately. Stigma places blame on the person suffering from the illness and makes them ashamed to talk openly about what they're going through. And let me tell you what what we know, Aliza. You know, I told you the biggest cause is depression and 20% of adolescents meet criteria for major depression. This thing that they inherit from, you know, it's genetic, it's chemical. Okay. But up to 75% of people who need these simple medicines don't get it. And why? Because of stigma. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. But what we know is that not treating depression is what kills people. Autopsy studies are invariably associated with no treatment or lack of compliance. The CDC has has told us that as well. We also know that since we have these simple medicines, SSRIs, right, like Prozac and Paxil, the suicide rate has dropped dramatically across the world, across ages, reversing a trend prior to their introduction. Okay. But why, why do people not get these medicines? Okay. Because of stigma, right? This isn't a real illness. I'm weak if I ask for help. And this is particularly problematic in, in boys and males. You guys know that men and, um, and adolescent boys, they die by suicide more than females. We used to think it's because of the methods they chose, but I think we're under understanding more and more that it's because of this stigma. You know, one of my very renowned colleagues uh, did work with the CDC and and you know what he found? Only 11% of male suicides had antidepressants in their system versus 41 or 44% in females. Meaning that barrier to help seeking is really, really much higher and even more significant when when it comes to males who are supposed to be strong and invincible and that help seeking barrier, you know, there, there's science it, and this is the culture of machismo from baseball to border protection. You know, a lot of people are kids are athletes, right? When I went to major league baseball, I learned a lot about this, that the baseball players didn't want to go to talk to the psychologist. You're not supposed to show your weakness, right? This is a firefighter. It's the shame, the stigma admitting to admitting that you have any kind of problems that gets in the way of beating depression. But when you see other people up there, right? 
that you know you're not alone and you can go out and get help. What we need to teach kids and parents is this message that it's actually a sign of strength to seek help. So to clarify, so there are a few things that that brings up. One is also how do parents know when their child needs help beyond connecting with their parents and their family and engaging in their community when it really is critical that they get support. But before you talk about that, I also am wondering, just to go back to 13 Reasons, what is the distinguishing factor that helps parents understand that asking your friend about this, that mentioning somebody who, for example, recently in New York City, a boy killed himself and the parents were concerned that now this school is going to have more rates of suicide because they were thinking about that copycat idea and 13 reasons. So I really want to unpack those differences. And I think that the the reason that I want to spend so much time on it is because that stigma that you were talking about, even in my asking the question is so pervasive that it really scares people that they will say the wrong thing. And then it will have the equivalent effect of these upticks that you see in, you know, like you saw after 13 reasons. And why was there that uptick? Yes. And so Let me reassure everybody listening. You will always, always do better in helping somebody by asking as opposed to not asking. Not asking is what enables people to suffer in silence. And like I said, people want to be asked and they need to be asked. And contagion is what you're talking about. That's a real thing. And the the biggest thing that we know about about contagion is what the media shouldn't do and Mm -hmm. what they should do. And this translates to you guys, okay? And what they should do is always message that depression and mental health issues are treatable, suicide is preventable, we need to destigmatize it. This is what you need to be telling your kids. What we don't want to do is glorify, talk about methods, things like that, right? Talk mm-hmm. and 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 not that not that parents are going to necessarily do that. But what we we do know that when you when you hear about kids, you know what we heard about the the suicide that you were sp- speaking about in an eighth grader, right? Yeah, there were rumors, right that. I think some negative thing had just happened in that boy's life. Right. And everybody said, well, oh my gosh, is that the reason? Because the parents had no signs. And that's never the reason. A bad test, a test coming up, a breakup with a girlfriend or boyfriend, those are stressors, but that is not going to cause somebody to end their life. It's long, it's a need to end the pain. It's long-standing suffering. I told you depression is the biggest cause. And the best and most important thing you can do as parents is be attuned to what your kids are looking like. You see, they, they look a little more down. They're not doing things they're interested in. They seem more irritable. Well, then that's the time to ask these particular questions. Mm-hmm. Be attuned, right? You're not going to ask them at every meal, but when you feel something's off, then you ask them and you can educate and you can say, Hey, 
I just learned about these questions and you should know about them. And here's a copy of them because if you, you can use it, if you're worried about a friend of yours, right? It's a, yes. and, and, and there's another great point that I want to tell, tell the audience listening today. One of the things that we've learned from prior mass traumas is that when you, when you help others, that feeling of altruism, it actually helps you heal. So what that means is when kids or you or neighbors are asking these questions, it's actually going to be great for your own mental health. It's what the Parkland community said as well. Now we don't have to sit back and feel helpless. We can be part of the solution. So one of the things that you can take away from today is not only just a set of questions that you can use. And frankly, we all have a responsibility. As Parkland said, we now have to be responsible as a community, whether it's the grocery store on social media of asking these questions, but you can educate your kids with this information. You know, depression is no different than any other medical illness. If you had asthma, I'd make sure that you got an inhaler. If yes. you had an infection, I'd make sure you had an antibiotic. And let me tell you, this is no different than that. So one opener, even into this conversation is if you, and and, and I guess, would you recommend, hey, this has been a really difficult year. And I want to check in with you. And I want to ask you some things, even if you think everybody's doing well. Yes. I think, I think you certainly can. That also destigmatizes and normalizes, right? Because people right. do suffer in silence without a, a sign, right? This has mm-hmm. been a difficult year and there's a lot going on, a lot going on around you. So I just want to ask you some questions about, about some, some thoughts that you may have had or some things. So, you know, and how you've been feeling. And then also empowering them to be able to talk to their friends who might be struggling, even if they're feeling like they've actually quite, you know, thrived during this time. What age do you think, given what you know, what age is this conversation important to start having? This conversation. And and I know embedded in that is its own stigma. So there is no age basically that is too young to be having these conversations. Meaning, right? You heard me say that rare, but five-year-olds actually take their own lives. Eight-year-olds take their own lives even more than that. And people use these questions even, even down, you know, all over the age span. So clearly it's different and done in it, you know, but there is no age that you have to worry that you shouldn't be asking these questions. So is there an age where you would say, you know what, I don't want to mention, I'm I'm just going to use an example. The word I, suicide? Yeah. Let's, let's just even use that. When do you explain the word suicide, the possibility of suicide? It's so yeah. hard for all of us to even think about. It's such an unimaginable, painful yep. Yep. thing to talk about. Yeah. And, and, and understandable. And again, that question, you know, that has been pervasive and tied up with the stigma across the globe. You know, I work with every country across the world. And I remember doing an interview, Aliza, in, in Cyprus. And, you know, it's illegal to say the word suicide on TV. In India, for many years, it was illegal to, mm. you, you could be arrested for making a, a, a suicide attempt. 
And when we went with the health commissioner and he said, I remember growing up and you knew somebody killed themselves and people said, shh, 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 we have to, you know, you, you had to cover, they don't even have, have rates. All right. You know, because, because of all that shame and silence that, and report that affects reporting. But what I want to say is that if you have a very young kid and they're not looking, they're not looking good right? That you feel like they look more down and things like that. And you, you, you want to talk to a professional as well, but we, we have a preschool version of this and it, Mm. it has ways of asking. So if somebody doesn't know the word suicide, you say, have you thought about how to make yourself not alive anymore? If they're saying I'm sad, right? These are, these are questions you can ask and you can use the words and in case they don't know what killing themselves means. Right. But you don't have to be afraid. It's not going to put the idea in someone. Again, the science shows us the opposite and it gets back to that point that when people or kids are suffering, they actually want help and you cannot cause them to be suicidal. It's quite the opposite. Now you mentioned social media. And I wonder if you can touch on both the positive and negative potential of social media to help support kids who are struggling and also the parts of social media that might be hurting kids and how we can monitor and pay attention to that. Yes. So this is very interesting. We had a, I was at a work group in the White White House and we had a working group on, on this particular issue and I had learned a lot about the, the science of this as well. Uh, there were some deep debates on, you know, what does more harm? Does social media do more harm than good? It actually, guess what the answer is? Much more good. Did you know that it's one of the number one suicide prevention tools? Not only suicide prevention, though, for everybody listening, um, teen pregnancy, drug use, for all the same reasons, the immediate peer-to-peer feedback, the treatment information, and all the things you can get in a way that we've never been able to get before. Now, on the other side of the fence, of course, there can be negative effects for vulnerable kids. And you know, what does that mean? So what the things you want to think about is you want to make sure that your, your teen is not, you know, on social media, you know, 24 seven, you want to moderate, you want to, you know, have some kind of oversight because kids who, who are depressed or have self-esteem issues, like so many others that you, you want to make sure that you can try to protect them against those negative effects. You know, there is a study that shows that excessive social media use increases kids drinking and, and drug use. I believe I I can't remember the exact negative outcomes. I think that was it because they see their friends right at parties Mm -hmm. doing this. So it gives you this pressure, just the way they see somebody looking skinny and having fun, you know, it affects eating issues. So you want to make sure to counter those things with those effects, you know, and and I have to say, I was on doing a, a PBS show on adolescent suicide. And it was, I did it with some friends. They became friends. They lost their, their daughter to suicide. And they said, social media and bullying, they said, does not cause suicide. And I think that's the important take-home message, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Those are the things you want to look at, see what you can do. Their triggers, their precipitants. But the most important thing is to 
assess and ask and see what kind of suicidal thoughts people are having and really get to the root of the matter, which is the, whether it's because of those things or secondary to those things, whether they are depressed and, and getting them the kind of help that they need. I'm glad you mentioned it because I just, I think that is another one of those things that um, scares people. And of course, I mean, I think my understanding is that social media also can mimic, like the bullying part can mimic what your social life is in in real life. It just can exacerbate it, but that that's a separate issue from the, you know, causing certain things like suicide. And so just paying attention. Yep. Yep. And let me clarify this. Remember I said the biggest cause is this treatable medical illness called depression, right? The number one risk factor for dying by suicide is a history of a suicide attempt, meaning we have to monitor. That's the way we're going to find people, right? But depression is the second biggest risk factor, which means it's the biggest cause. However, as you add each additional risk factor, access to a weapon, break up with a girlfriend, right? Um, bullying, all those things add up to make the risk even more, mm-hmm. right? So they can contribute to this ultimate negative outcome, but in and of themselves, they do not cause it. And these are the most important things you need to do are identify, decrease stigma, identify if you're kid or anybody else is, is, is suffering and get them the treatment for, for what is going on. And that doesn't just mean depression, right? Anxiety is extremely prevalent. 25 or 30% of, of people will have an anxiety disorder. And by the way, what we know is that anxiety in kids feels about many, many times worse than even depression. They're often tied up together, but the good news is incredibly treatable. And Evidence-based practices are cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety is remarkably effective and even more effective than medication alone, by the way. And, but the two together are an awesome combination. So what are some of the myths regarding youth that we should talk about? Right. So very good question, because I think that the, the clinical lore and misunderstandings out there really do tremendous tremendous damage. We've spoken about how depression is a medical illness and we have to treat it like that. That's, that, that's one myth, right? That it's, that it's not. One of the other very important myths I think is that once somebody's made up their mind, there's actually nothing you can do about it. It's actually the opposite. The fact is that once you know that they've tried to end their life or they're, they, they're having thoughts about it, you can intervene. And that is one of the most dangerous myths that once they set their mind to it, they're going to do it. Absolutely not. And again, people who, kids who are suffering want help. They actually don't want to end their life. Like, like my friend, Kevin Hines, who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and just wanted someone to save him. Right. That's a a very important myth. What are some of the myths behind what anxiety and depression look like in youth before there's even suicide ideation or before there's a parent who might even consider that their child is struggling? I think one of the important things that I'd like for people to understand is what does depression look like in kids and in teens? which is a little counterintuitive and it looks different than depression looks in adults. 
That's really important. So, you know, depression, you need one of two main symptoms to get a diagnosis of major depression. What is that? So in adults, it can be sad mood or loss of interest or pleasure in things. But in kids, it can be sad or irritable or angry mood. And that's a very big deal, that difference. What that means is depression in youth can look like breaking things, temper tantrums, fights, aggression, even violence. And so there, you know, there's this thing that many, some of you may have heard of called oppositional defiant disorder. It's in the DSM, you know, the diagnostic book that we all live by when kids are oppositional, you cannot actually get that. The rule is you cannot give a kid that if they have depression, because that's what depression looks like. And it can, it can look very different than people think it is. So if you're seeing increased irritability, increased fighting, increased anger, that it's, it's very important that that's yet another reason why you get an evaluation because somebody, somebody might be, might be suffering from depression. And I want to say something that I've said (laughs) a thousand times to friends, colleagues, professionally, if anything in your gut tells you something's off, it's all upside to get an evaluation, right? You can never do wrong by getting information. It doesn't mean somebody's going to give you a script and you're, you're ambivalent about medicine. All it means is you're going to get information. And I cannot encourage that, that more. Kelly, can you tell us about the Columbia questions and how we know that it works in the context of, for example, parents talking to their kids peer to peer? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I would love to. So the Columbia questions are, they're really simple. So it starts with, have you wished you were dead or wish you could go to sleep and not wake up? Or have you actually had thoughts of killing yourself? And only if that question is yes, would you say, have you thought about how you might do this? Have you had these thoughts and had some intention of acting on them? Or have you started to work out or worked out the details of how to kill yourself? Do you intend to carry out this plan? And I'm going to get to another question in a moment, but I said, only if that one is yes, do you ask the next three? Because you can't have a thought of method or intent or intent plus plan if you don't have a thought of of killing yourself. One of the reasons that the Columbia has been chosen as the global language is that it's the first time we have evidence-based thresholds for who to worry about. We know who to worry about before that principal had to keep the kid in his office for nine hours, waiting for the EMT to get there, even though he never needed to be sitting there in the first place. The policeman had to take everybody to the hospital. And by the way, you know what happens when you do that to that kid or to that person who was brought to the ER? It shuts them down from treatment when they actually need it. So what when I say the first time we know who to worry about, of the, with those questions I just said, we know that when they say, yeah, I can't tell you if I have if I have some intent to do it. That we know risk jumps a hundred percent. So what's the difference between the thought of have you thought about how you might do this? Yeah, I could take pills. I wrote it. I could jump off a bridge, but I'd never do anything about it. When they get to that next question, that becomes the one percent high risk answer. I can't tell you if I'm going to do something about it. And then. There's this other very important question. Have you ever done anything, started to do anything or prepared to do anything to end your life? Like collecting pills, getting a gun, giving valuables away, writing a suicide note. 
etc. That is one of the other reasons that the Columbia has been chosen as the global language. Why? Because in the past, you would have been lucky if you got asked about a suicide attempt and then you miss the kid who wrote the note or texted their friend or collected the pills, things we absolutely cannot afford to miss. And guess what else, Aliza? Our science has shown us that of the 1% high risk, those other things we were never asking about before represents 87% of serious suicidal behaviors. And each one of them, guess what, is equally predictive. So critically, critical importance in terms of helping save lives through a few simple questions, that is really, really, really important. But let me also say one of the reasons we have this, you know, kind of down hour, reduce suicide, reduce workload, reduce liability, you know, even for a parent or a coach, people didn't want to ask because we don't have a perfect formula. So say, what if I ask and something happens? So because the Columbia has so much science behind it, a book with 120 studies, a thousand that reference it, it frees you up. So when MIT had a suicide, you know, like every university does, the Supreme Court brief mentioned it as the reasonable standard. What does that mean? That means that when you're a student or a parent or a teacher, you're freed up to ask without that concern. And there was a study now, a seminal study out of um, Sweden showing that the Columbia in ER is predicted death by suicide using imminent risk timeframes for the first time ever in the field, which is really important about the potency. But But the most important thing I'd like to say again is that what we've learned is moving the needle most is making sure it gets in everybody's hands because many people don't ever get to the doctor and you can't rely on somebody having the will to come to you. So, you know, the, the military were the first ones to test that, Aliza. They wrote this urgent memo out of the Pentagon that we have to put this in everybody's hands. And so the Marines were the first ones to test that. You know, legal assistance, financial aid counselors, clergy, they reduced suicide 22% that year. Then the Air Force took it to another level and they put it in every airman, spouse, dentist, they had the lowered suicide clergy. And that has become a model for the world, right? That's actually why I had the great honor to receive the Secretary of Defense Medal for Exceptional Public Service, because they were the first ones to model for every community, every parent, everybody across the globe that you can do this and it really does make a difference. So guess what? There's There's a state where it's policy for for the janitor, for the janitor, Vermont has policy and story after story, the janitor who told the coach who got the kid help and saved his life. I can't overstate that. You know, I went, I I gave um, a, a talk in Connecticut for the state and this huge system said, you know, we gave it to the janitors and this, this clinician said exactly right. I'll never forget that veteran who the, and the only person that, that he spoke to was the janitor. And we hear stories over and over school to elsewhere. So this is what's going on across the globe from the deserts to the cities in Israel. And that's very, very exciting. We know that you guys are the first first line of being able to save a life. And you always want to err on the side of asking and being there and empowering with information. Is there anything else you want to get across to the folks listening? Yes, I do. But actually, first, I, I, I'd like to ask a favor. 
mm-hmm. of the audience. So I, I had mentioned my my friend and hero, Ryan Petty. He he lost his daughter at Parkland. She was one of the 17 massacred that day. And stand with Parkland and the Parkland parents. They talk more about the Columbia Protocol than they do even about guns and early identification. And then when they had the contagion, the suicides, there were like a plethora of articles across the world and news stories. And with this headline, you know, Parkland tragedy turned into hope with the Columbia protocol. And he said to me, I don't understand why it's not in every human being's hands. And I said, because not everybody, every human being knows about it. So in states and communities all over, People are brainstorming a public health approach. How do we get it? Billboards, sides of buses, milk cartons, right? Around coffee cups, around lanyards, around your neck. How do we make this a public health approach? You know, globally, most EAPs, lots of EAPs use it. Amazon is one. And they said, yes, let's put it on the side of an Amazon box, right? So I am challenging parents that have any good ideas about how to do that bottom up or top down. That is a favor that we want to ask because it will help people save lives. Somebody sees these questions. It may be just that moment that saves a life, right? You never know. And I want to end by saying that I spoke about the silence and 135 people affected by every death and those effects lingering across generations. It may sound corny, but When we break the silence, it gives us permission to connect, to build a path of openness and resilience that will span generations and help us save lives. You know, at one point in history, learning to wash hands, save lives. Now just asking can do just that. And it was, as I said, Parkland said that as a community, we don't have to sit back and feel helpless or powerless. One of the things that suicide prevention in Israel, the government of Israel said, is that it's not only saving millions of lives, it's literally changing the way we live our lives, breaking down barriers that have been built up over thousands of years. So now the third generation Holocaust survivor who never had a voice does, the Israeli provider can talk to the the Arab child. And we can mimic that kind of secondary gain everywhere everywhere by, by everybody, by opening up, you know, breaking down barriers and that, that have really thwarted our ability to save lives for, for, for centuries. We're connecting right now. And I I can't overstate the importance of that. Did you know that the CDC tells us that connecting is one of the most vital things we can do to prevent suicide? And we know that unless you doubt the power of connecting, by the way, there was a study that showed that the its opposite loneliness is equivalent to smoking up to smoking 15 cigarettes a day, more lethal than obesity right. or heart disease. And this peer-to-peer issue, we know that having a common language is an intervention in and of itself. It builds cohesion, it builds connectedness. So using these simple questions can actually do that. And now during COVID, I have to say the power of that is even more important because out there, if you have a kid who's suffering or a friend that's suffering, you may be lucky if you get telehealth once a week, makes it all the more important to check, not only check in on your kid, check in on your neighbor, check in on your friend, right? The power of connecting, the power of helping find people who are suffering in silence. (sighs) I'm so grateful for your work. 
I am so, so grateful for your work. And I'm grateful for this, for this platform. It, it couldn't be more important to get these vital life-saving messages out to all the parents that have been listening. And I will put the Columbia protocol in the show notes and I'll post about it on Instagram and we'll get this out there as much as possible. And obviously we're going to have a part two of this conversation. I can't wait to have you back and I love you so much. Oh, and I love you. And I'm just excited that we could do this. 